Welcome back to episode number 57 of the MP Dude. This is Jeff the MP Dude giving nurse practitioners a voice. That's all of our voices. So keep comments, questions, concerns, any of those headaches that are bothering you. Send them to me at jeff at the npdude.com. You can also PM me on Facebook and listen on iTunes, guys. That's another way you can listen and get information from this show. Um, housekeeping stuff. Um... We're still stagnant on Facebook likes, but I'm getting a ton of emails and PMs from people that are saying they won't listen on iTunes. So keep listening, guys. I appreciate you letting me know that because it's, it is really hard to track. I could see the individual episode um, rating relative to the other episodes, like the most frequently viewed or downloaded episode. And they're all still getting hit pretty hard, but the ones that used to be like higher on the end are now like average. So I could tell you guys are listening more now than what you were before so i appreciate that keep listening spread the word don't forget to like and share the show on facebook too though because that way um that's a good way to, to spread it when i see sh- people sharing the show on facebook what happens is my um my views for that episode will quadruple with like one or two shares and so I know people are, are getting the information, and I know people are listening. And, and I, again, I'm never asking for money. I'm not asking for anything other than just to be part of this community and to be able to provide some information and be mildly entertaining, too. Hopefully. Maybe a little bit. I don't know. Occasionally. Every now and then somebody giggles, I think. Maybe. I don't know. Anyways, so what do we want to talk about today? Um, I don't know. Let's see. I, I got a question last night, another one about non-competes. Got some more non-compete stuff. Um, I beat up on that pretty hard, though. Um, but we'll talk about it, too, because I think it's important. And um, NPI number stuff. we got some more stuff. And some basic, like, what do I do? I'm a new NP. How do I get How do I get uh, licensed? And how do I get all that stuff done? And, and it's so overwhelming. And, and what are the main pieces to the puzzle? So that, that, I think, is a good one we could talk about. Maybe we'll do that one last. But um, the first one was a non-compete question, and it was a specific non-compete question. And I've talked to this person actually on the phone. They're an Ohio person, and, and I appreciate them listening, and I appreciate their inf- information. And um, I'm not going to use names, and I'm not going to give any more information about who they are. But the non-compete issue that she was asking about was related to geographical like distance. How is it measured? And is it measured by, you know, like is it the you know line of sight? In other words, a straight radius, if you were to take a pin and put it on a map and take a compass and just spin it around and, and do it at you know the 20-mile or 30-mile or 100-mile or whatever that radius is, and is that how they do it, or is it by like travel on roads? And um, the, the answer to most of these questions is, you know, it depends on what the contract says. So you have to read what the contract says. If it says radius, it means a radius. If it doesn't say then you can pretty much assume that it's going to be the least restrictive definition that you could come up with is how the court would read it. And then that led to another question. So that one was an easy one, right? And that one's really, you know, go read the contract, see what it says. And that, that, that's with most provisions in contracts is that if you have a question, you got to go right to the words, the literal words that are in the document. And then the question becomes, well, what's the definition? Yeah, right? So that's where definition sections in contracts, if you don't know what the definition of something is, you need to define that term. And you define it in a definition section of the contract. So this is just good contract, you know, reading, writing, all that stuff in the future for you guys. If you don't know the definition of a term, like it could be construed in multiple different ways, 
It needs to be specifically defined for that contract. So that's an important point too. I didn't even think about that until just now. But that, that to describe that. But that's that's really what you want to do with the, with the terms. You, you got to spell them out exactly what you mean. And it's hard because you don't know until you get into a situation sometimes what that definition really is going to mean. And sometimes it changes from what your original thought was. So you have to be very careful with not making it too narrow that you, you're no longer working within the bounds of what your contract says. And then you don't want it too broad that it could be meant to be multiple things and you want it to be one thing and the other party wants it to be another thing and it makes a difference. It might make a difference. It might mean that you you don't have to pay more money or you can't get out of a deal or um, your restrictive covenant is too, too narrow or too broad. So the words matter. It really does. And I love saying that because it's so true, and especially in contracts. Words matter. People that are like pro- computer programmers and engineers that are very methodical and like to have every piece and very logical do very well with writing contracts because it is so literal. You can think like the, the, the kid that has, you know, and I'm not trying to be derogatory, but like an autistic boy that is very literal in his meaning, then, then um, they would be perfect for writing contracts because every word means literally what it means. And if it doesn't, then you need to, to define it. And that then your definition needs to be literally what it means. <laughs> so so that's that's that. And, and nurses tend not to be that way. Nurses tend to be more, um, you know, more emotionally like um, the other side of the brain, whatever it is. Right brain? I don't know. Left brain is, uh, you know, math and science and stuff like that. And right brain is more arts and things that I think, right? Language? Whatever it is. But that side of the brain, they, they tend to be more the other side, the less logical. And I don't mean to say that nurses are illogical. That's not at all what I mean. But the, the, that that logic, in, in other words, the true definition, true meaning, true, they hold less respect for that. So when I see nurses reading contracts, they're like, eh, it's, they, that, this is kind of what we mean. And they're okay with that. And that's just the, the personality. And some of it's that they don't know, but most of it's just the personality. And I'm both, right? Which makes it really hard. I'm talking about like the perfect storm inside myself. <laughs> I got like a tornado going on around in my brain. So I got both, right? So anyways, um, the other thing about restrictive covenants, and I saw this on a Facebook page, and, and um, I see a lot of good advice on Facebook, and I see a lot of really just kind of, well, not really so good advice. And this one in particular, and this is somebody that I, I really do value their opinion. I really do. And I've seen a lot of posts from this person, and, and they seem to be one of the senior people in the group and um, have a lot of great tips on practice. But this one, she blew it. And, and um, the question was, I've got a contract that has a restrictive covenant, and it was a new person, new grad, and they were like, I don't know anything about this. What do I do? What's a restrictive covenant and what's reasonable? You know, what should I sign this thing or not? Is this, are they being too overburdening? And I see people all the time that say, I'll never sign one with a restrictive covenant. And I see other people saying, um, they're illegal in most states. And I, you know, I see all these, these comments and I'm like, all right, well, let's back it up a little bit. First off, they're not illegal or unenforceable in most states. That's not true. It's not true. It's not true. It's not true. I believe, and I found a website that had a list of all the restrictive covenant provisions and what 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 professions they can can and cannot apply to. It was a really great thing. It was put out by some law firm, um, and it was pretty up to date. It looked like it was 2016, so it's pretty close. 
and I trust that they did their decent research, but I would encourage that, like anything, you would go follow up and do your own. But the majority of the states, and by majority I mean like 48 of them, you, it, was, it was lawful to have a restrictive covenant. So people on Facebook saying it's illegal to have it and it's unenforceable is not true, not true, not true, not true. Now there are certain professions that they will restrict in certain states. So, and you have to be very careful because even in Ohio, that is a, a pretty um, uh, liberal construction of the the restrictive covenants. In other words, they tend to keep them as as much as they can, right? Depends on which side of the the table you're on, I guess, between whether it's liberal or or conservative. But but it, they're they're liberally construed. In other words, they're more willing to let people do what they want. And say, well, you sign the agreement. It's up to you to make a better deal next time. Sorry, and then they do what's they, they actually do the red the red pencil test in Ohio, not the blue pencil test. And I thought it was the blue pencil test, but it's the red. And I've said that wrong before, and I apologize. I did it wrong. Unless these people are wrong, and they very well may be on their thing. But it said red pencil. Red pencil test basically means that you just cross out the provisions that are unenforceable. You just redline it, and you're crossing out the stuff that that's not enforceable in the eyes of the court. And that, that that goes to a reasonableness test. What's reasonable in the industry? What's reasonable for previous con- you know contracts? What's reasonable for um, you know uh, is are you really competing or not? Or is it overburdensome to not protect? Or is it to be punitive? The whole idea is to protect the the person from you stealing their their clients. So the red pencil test is what we have in Ohio, not the blue, and I've, I mis, misspoke last time. But the blue pencil test is where they actually will rewrite the provision. Instead of just crossing out that portion of the provision, they'll say, you know what, we'll change it from you know, 150 miles, which is overly burdensome. In the red line test, they cross out 150 miles, and they, there's no longer a mileage restriction. So in, in some effect, that might make that covenant go away. But it's a reasonableness test, and it's looked at on a case-by-case basis. But most of them in Ohio are enforceable. Now, the blue pencil test is where they actually will rewrite in and put in a reasonable number. So they'll cross out the 150 and put in 10 miles or something like that. So they are enforceable in a lot of places. Now, other ones, it's questionable. They just don't know. It depends on which court you get into. It depends on the judge. And most of these don't go up to the Supreme Court in the state, so you don't know because it's not really a state Supreme Court issue. It's not really a law issue. It's a common law thing. So it really never goes up that high. So are they enforceable? Yeah, they are. So write a good deal for you. Now, the other part that I saw in that thread that was more of the same theme is don't sign it because it's a restrict. I'll never sign one of them. Okay. That's you. <laughs> you do say that stuff in my state, in my part of the country where there's a surplus of nurse practitioners. You're not going to get a job, dude. <laughs> you got to be careful. So don't go in guns blazing with with your attitudes. Like I'll never sign a restrictive covenant ever. Well, you need to make sure it's reasonable. So if you're working in a specialty, make it you know to the scope of the specialty that you're not going to go work for another rheumatologist within the area, within a 15 mile radius or something like that. Or if you're doing cardio or whatever. Make it limited to that scope of practice. Now, if you're a family nurse practitioner and you're going to work in a family practice, then you got to worry about your distance because you can go work in anything. 
and you could you could do the same thing and say it's for other competing family practices. So you got to be careful what you do on that. And I agree. You, you want to be. You just want to make sure you know what you're what you're getting into, and you want to make sure is there anybody else that I potentially want to work for in the next two to three years in this area, and does it restrict me to go work for them? And if the question is yes, then you try to negotiate it down so that you can go go work for the other people that you like, just in case something happens with your current employer. That's my recommendation on that one. But the, the advice is, you know, it's mostly, you know, pretty decent. You know, like, oh, that's, you know, it's 10 miles or 5 miles or whatever. It wasn't that impressive. It's not that big a deal. In the term, we've talked all about that. So go go back and look at my search bar on my webpage, thenpdude.com, and you can put in um, non-compete or restriction or something like that. All those are, I put those tag words in there and it'll come up for all the shows that I've talked about with non-competes, which is now a bunch of them. But that, that one just, it still makes me nervous when people just say categorically, don't sign that contract. You might be very well turning down a great deal. <laughs> you might be blowing it. Don't blow it just because somebody on Facebook says, I wouldn't sign a contract like that. Well, you know, that's fine for you. Maybe in your state, there's, a, there's not a surplus of nurse practitioners. You know, you got to look at your specific circumstances. So I will never judge somebody for signing a contract that's got a non-compete, ever. I just won't, because most of them have it. So don't act like you know this is the rarity. You know, these are just being impressive people. No, this is the profession. Welcome to be the world of being a professional. There's a lot of non-competes out there, except for lawyers in Ohio. They were smart enough to get the legislation put in for that. So in Ohio, there's no such thing as a non-compete for lawyers. Isn't that great? But that's because they had the ability to levy that one. Yeah, and it's the same policy argument that it would be used for for family, for uh, physicians, nurse practitioners, and PAs. the The policy reason in Ohio why you don't have a non compete for for attorneys is that um, the case law said that um, the judge basically came down to the fact that you have a personal relationship with your attorney such that it's minimum you know no other profession has that which i think is false i think you also have that with your practitioner um and actually more so and that that because you have that personal relationship that you shouldn't be able to restrict the client's decision to go work or go to you as a as a professional and that's that was that was upheld and that was that was found to be you know good reason in that respect Maybe we could get it done on the other side. I don't know. I guess maybe if I was an employer, I would feel differently if somebody came to work for me and I wanted to stop them from taking all my business to the guy down the street. I, I don't know. My philosophy on non-competes is this. If I'm doing such a crappy job that you can take my clients away from me, then my clients deserve to go to you. <laughs> That's the way I view it. If I'm doing a good job and I have a good rapport and good relationship with my clients, they shouldn't want to go anywhere else. Right, I, that's that's my philosophy. So non-competes to me are just kind of a you know it's it's a cop out for maybe not being the best professional you could be. I don't know from from the from the the business side of it, not from the practitioner side of it. You know what I'm saying? From the owner's side, that side of the table, negotiation-wise. Anyways, so I'm at 15 minutes. I'm, I'm not going to beat up on the piece anymore. But don't always just take advice on Facebook and then go make your decision. Get some more information first. Listen to these podcasts. That's a good way to do it. Now, again, this isn't legal advice. And I'm just giving you enough information that you should just go research it yourself. But don't be too 
hasty to make decisions on any issue just because you saw it on Facebook thread, you know, last night and you're emotional today and you're going to make a decision, you will probably regret doing that. I would regret doing that. So learn more first. All right. So next thing, NPI number. National Provider Identification Number. And I've talked about what NPI number is, so go use the search bar for that. You can go back and listen to the other shows that I've talked about NPI numbers, and I did, I think, a decent job explaining what it is in the past. And I think I even went into you know the application process, but I, I can't remember. The, the, the big deal with this was somebody was asking about NPI number, and then it went on a side tangent about filling out the application, whether you should do it before you get a job or not. And... Um, I didn't. I waited until I, I had my, my first employer so that I could use their address. Here's why. And somebody said, you, you know, Jeff, you should probably talk about this. And then they PM me about something else later. And I, I appreciate the comments. You know who you are. And I appreciate you listening. And I appreciate the comments. Um, this this issue is, in, in my opinion, the reason why I did it was more, I just wanted to have the employer's address on everything so it all matched. So I got my DEA and my MPI and everything was done and it was just with the employer and it was there and it was done, right? Why would you get it in your employer's number? Because you can search MPI and the person's name and your address would come right up if you put it in your personal address. It's a really easy way to find someone <laughs> if you don't know anything about them and you know they're a healthcare provider you could put their name and npi number you know without the actual number just put npi and the person's name in google and bam it comes right up so you can have my npi numbers public knowledge public knowledge publicly reported transparent there you are okay now what what is it used for? It's a, it's basically your social security number as a healthcare provider or healthcare professional or healthcare um, supply provider, in other words, or equipment provider or stuff like that. So if you make equipment or sell use a service or medications or anything like that, anybody that that basically bills Medicare, Medicaid, or any of the private insurances has to have an NPI number because that's how they track you. That's how they basically track you so you can get paid. It's how the, your MPI number. It's just a tracking number. It doesn't do anything else. But again, if you put your personal information in there and somebody Googles it and they're smart enough to do that, then your, your information comes popping right up. Personal information. Now, am I that worried about it? No. And here's why. Because your state license has your personal information. You shouldn't be using your, your company address for your license. You should be using your personal one, and here's why they make you do that. They want to know who you are in case you screw up. They want, one, to know where they can terminate your license and give you notice properly. So imagine you gave your first company's address for your license application, and then you moved to another part of the state and took a job somewhere else, but you still have your licenses active, but they have your old address, and now they want to send you a letter saying, hey, we've got complaints against you, and we need process of service of process against you, they can't find you. So you have to use your personal information with your state license, at least in Ohio, and I would imagine it's the same way everywhere. So somebody, if they're smart enough to go look up your MPI number and get you that way, guess what? They're smart enough to go on your state board of nursing's website, do a license lookup, put in your name, and bam, there you come. <laughs> with all your personal information. So am I that worried about your MPI number having your personal information? Not really. 
I really don't care. I really don't. I did it through the first company just because I was just that was the process that I did it, and I really didn't think about it too much. But I guess if you want to try to limit your information that's out there in the public, that would be one way that you could help limit it. But it doesn't really matter because your license information's out there. So here's the, the the functional part of it, and this is why I wanted to go into the rest of this: is that when when I graduated, I had already signed up with AANP. And most people are like, okay, I'm about to graduate in three weeks or four weeks, and I see a lot of these questions, and I don't know what to do. What am I doing? I, you know, my school didn't tell me anything about the process. Well, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to pick which certification exam you want to take. Go back and listen to episode three. I talk about the differences between the AANC and AANP, or ANCC and AANP. I talk about it there, and there's a ton of information, and there's a ton of people. If you if you put in the search bar on Facebook, you'll get about five thousand comments about which one's better and why. So you do that, you get your certification scheduled, you get all that stuff, you graduate, yay, you have your little party, and then you have fun, and you have a couple beers, and then you go, oh crap, now i got to study, and you get ready for your certification exam. You schedule the thing, however the process is, I can't even remember what the process is, it was so mundane, you just signed up and then, you know, you know I think it was uh, sign up through AANP, pick your testing center, and the date. And it was like, well, you know, schedule your test thing. It was, it was obvious. You schedule your test, you go take your test. Bam, you passed. Yay, I'm certified. Awesome. Now I'm seriously looking for a job. If you don't have one already, you should be doing that now. So you get your job lined up. You're, everything's looking great. You've, you love them. They love you. You're ready to start working, but you don't have anything else lined up. What do you do? Well, now you've got your employer. You've got your employer's address. Maybe you have a contract that you're working on or your contract is signed. I wouldn't do anything with my licenses or with my personal information, like my personal, like my MPI number. I wouldn't put anybody else's information down address-wise until I had a signed contract. Just because I would, it's just too much of a pain in the butt to go change it later. So I would get that scheduled, get everything, or get get your your uh, contract signed, and then I would go from there and it, with filling out the rest of my stuff. So what else do you have to do? Your state license. Um, you do right away. You can do that before you get your job. But what you do is you, you fill out your application for your state for whatever license they call it. Now it's APRN license in Ohio, but it used to be called your COA and your CTP. And you would send in your information to them, and then you'd have your transcripts forward. And AANP would send them a record of your actual um, certification. And then they would say, okay, you've met the criteria. Your, your transcripts are good. Your, um, your, your certification looks good. Everything looks great. Every, your application fee's paid. Boom, you get your license. And sometimes it could take a couple weeks. It might take a couple months. It just depends on your state. Some of them are quick. Some of them you, you fill out the paperwork and it's like a week. You got your license. Some of them, like my state, you know, if I didn't hound them and call them every, you know, every other day, it would have taken six months because that's kind of the backdoor process to get them to get the license done. So anyways, you get your license, you got your job, now you've got, um, what else do you really need before you start credentialing and all that stuff? You need to get your MPI number first because that's the first thing they're going to ask you for when, when you go to get your credentialing through the insurance companies because they need to know what you're, who you are. Again, it's your social security number for who you are as a practitioner. So you get your MPI number application and just Google MPI application 
MPI number application. It was super easy, and I think it's through a website. I think it's NPDES or something like that. I, I can't even remember. It was something like that, NIPDES or something. And you just fill out the application. It's super easy. It wasn't a big deal. You get your MPI number, like, I don't know, later that day. They email it to you. It's, it's not a process. So it's not something that you're like, man, i got to get my MPI and it's going to take weeks to get. No, just fill it out once you get your job. And, and literally by the time you, you get asked from the uh, credentialing person, you can have it like that day. And then they'll have it the next day. It's not a big deal. It might take a day or two. But, I mean, it's, it's that order of magnitude of time frame. So don't freak out about your, your, your MPI number. It's not a big deal. And then your DEA number is really just a question of are you going to get your DEA number and if you're going to pay for it or they're going to pay for it or how did you negotiate that. Usually what you have to do is you fill in the application and you pay for it and then they reimburse you is how I would negotiate in my contract. That's what I did. And so then that application process, again, wasn't very difficult, but it took a little time to fill out. It took, you know, an hour. I don't think it was a big deal. And all, I, all you had to do, I think, was put in your state license number and um, answer all the questions. You know, it's the same, same questions you see for all the credentialing and all the license stuff. You know, have you been connected of, convicted of a felony? Uh, have you ever lost a license? Have you ever, you know, that kind of stuff. Which is amazing to me in this day and age that, that we, you know, with as much computer technology availability, that they wouldn't just know that, right? They should be able to know that without having to ask us overtly, have you, you know, do you have a felony? They should be able to, to know that pretty easily, right? Anyways, I don't know, I just was thinking about that and thought, wow, that's crazy, right? You should be able to know that. So that's, that's the process. It's not really the, a big deal. The biggest thing is your certification. Get your certification out of the way, and then, and then your application to the state. And that's really not even that big a deal. It's just it takes time. That's the part that takes time. So I would do that as soon as possible. You know, you take your certification that day. As soon as you passed, I would apply for the state license. And you can actually, in, in Ohio, I think you can apply early, and then it just they wait for it. But I don't know, functionally, does that slow it down or not. I don't think they get you in the line faster. I think it just sits in the pile until all the stuff's there, then it gets reviewed. So I don't think it gets you to the head of the, the pile to apply early. I, I had people that applied after me that got their license sooner than me in my class, which I, I think it was like whatever papers on top of the pile gets seen first. So if yours is the you know, last in, first out type of thing, <laughs> it's just, you know, whatever. It's kind of typical, right? Anyways, but I love the board. The board's doing a great job. All right. There's my board, shameless board plug. I got more to talk about, but we're at 26 minutes and I'm stuck behind four cars. Again, four. Well, it's a truck and three cars. So I'm going to pass them in a second. I got to find a good spot. Anywho, keep sharing the show, guys. I'm having so much fun with this. I've gotten really, really great responses, um, getting a lot of good feedback. You iTunes people, keep sending me notes. Just let me know you guys are still listening. I still have only a handful of rating, ratings on iTunes. Still a 5 out of 5. And um, I, I don't buy it. I, like I said in the last show, I just don't trust it. You guys, I, I, I'm not that good. <laughs> I'm, I'm just not that good at this. So there's no way I'm 5s all the time. So if there's something that you guys think I'm worth a 4 or a 3 or a 2 or a 1, give me a rating. I just want to know why. Just tell me why so I can make it better if it's something I can fix. So keep listening, guys. Keep sharing the show. Um, having a great time, and uh, we'll talk soon.